Well, if you have your Bible one more time this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1050. If you're a guest with us today, we've been studying through uh, this section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come this morning to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll begin reading in verse number 12. And I want to speak this morning for a few minutes on this subject, a den of robbers, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. And this is what the word of God says. And Jesus entered the temple And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, And he lodged there. I will never forget my first trip to Nepal. At the end of our ministry work, we had a free day to explore Kathmandu. And our last stop on that day was the Hindu temple, which is considered to be the most holy Hindu temple in all the world, drawing Hindus from all around the globe to make the journey to see this historic site. Though considered holy and sacred, this temple is far from those descriptions. It is shrouded in darkness and in evil. And the stench and the smoke from the cremated bodies hover over the temple grounds like a cloud. Within the walls of the temple, you see the barren fruit of a false system of worship that is completely devoid of Jesus Christ. And this tragic reality is clearly portrayed in the entrance to the temple. For several blocks, you walk down a street that is lined to the left and to the right with booth after booth after booth of man-made idols and religious wares that are used in the various religious ceremonies within the temple, all in an effort to worship and appease the 330 million false gods of the Hindu religion. The smells, sights, and sounds of that temple are oppressive. They literally break your heart, and they make you nauseous. Religious leaders pray and profit from the worshipers while holding them in complete bondage of fear, as all of these worshipers from all around the world try to appease these 330 million gods of their religion. 
And with everything inside of you, you want to cry out at the top of your lungs. It is not that complicated. God has made a simple way for you to come to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus understands this heartbreak. For on the morning after His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, He entered the temple and he saw firsthand the devastating effects of false religious leaders praying and profiting on the worshipers. And the smells and the sights and the sounds of what he encountered that day moved Jesus to righteous anger as he disrupted the corrupt and casual worship that had consumed the temple and turned it into a den of robbers. This passage before us this morning is often referred to as Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And it is an event that took place both at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2 and now here in Matthew 21 at the end of his ministry. And in cleansing the temple, Jesus pronounces God's judgment on false, empty, hypocritical worship. And he declares once again that he and he alone is king. And so would you notice with me this morning, first of all, in verse number 12, the authority of the king. Matthew writes, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now the scene where this account takes place is the court of the Gentiles. It was the outermost court, an enclosure of 35 acres, which surrounded and was separated from all the other precincts of the temple. And as Jesus entered this outer court of the temple, he would have encountered thousands of worshipers because most everyone was allowed to enter this court. The court of Gentiles had morphed into a religious marketplace, and it was operated under the direction of the high priest Annas. In fact, because the chief priest and the other associates of Annas oversaw the activity of the temple, this religious marketplace was often referred to as the Bazaar of Annas. Now, two key transactions were taking place in this court Of the Gentiles. First, there was the exchange of various national currencies for the temple coins that were used to pay the temple tax. Thus, you had money changers. And secondly, the sale of sacrificial animals. Now, worshipers did not have to buy these animals at the temple, they could bring their own sacrifices with them, but the priests had to sign off on those sacrifices, naming them as clean offerings for the Lord. But because many traveled such a long journey to Jerusalem, it was more convenient for them to buy their sacrificial animals right there at the temple. And so this religious marketplace performed a useful and necessary service in providing the animals needed for sacrifice by those who traveled from a distance, as well as the exchange of money for the temple dues. But listen carefully. What had begun as a service of convenience quickly turned to corruption. Merchants 
would buy rights to a concession for selling sacrificial animals and wine and oil and salt. Or they would buy a concession for exchanging money into the proper currency and denominations used for the temple offerings. And in addition to buying these booths, they would be charged franchising fees. And they would have to pay a certain percentage of their profit to the religious leaders and ultimately to Annas himself. And additionally, according to Levitical law, any animal had to be approved by the priest to be offered as a sacrifice. And so the majority of the priests were not signing off on sacrificial animals that were not purchased in the temple so that they could get a kickback. Now, one Jewish Christian historian described the scene that was taking place that Jesus encountered this way. He said a person would often have to pay as much as 10 times what an animal normally cost. And those who needed to have foreign currency exchanged or who had to have their money converted into the exact amount for an offering were charged up to a 25% fee. Corruption everywhere. The temple was the supreme place of Jewish worship. And the high priest and the chief priest had corrupted the worship of God and had taken advantage of the people of God for their own profit. When Solomon prayed and dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 14 to 42, he prayed that God would hear the prayers of his people from the temple and forgive and heal and defend and bless his people. But instead of a place focused on the worship of the one true and living God, the temple had become a place of materialism and a place of commercialism and a place of utter corruption. And so in verse 12, Matthew says that as Jesus entered the temple and as Jesus saw the desecration that was taking place, he was furious. Instead of making the temple a place of worship, the religious leaders had turned it into a den of robbers. And Matthew says in verse number 12, you'll note, that without warning, Jesus drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, when you read verse 12, can you not picture the scene in your mind? In the presence of thousands of worshipers, in the presence of confused merchants and money changers, and to the dismay of the priests and the scribes and the religious leaders, Jesus utterly decimated the bazaar. The whole area was in complete chaos with animals running loose and pigeons flying everywhere and money of all kinds rolling all over the temple court. And in his account... Mark adds this description to the scene in Mark eleven sixteen. Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, why does Mark say that? He says that because the temple was near the east gate and the court of Gentiles was often used as a thoroughfare by those traveling to or from the southwest side of the city. 
So in addition to all of the corruption and the bizarre, people were just walking through the house of God as an easy route to their next destination. And the implication of Mark's account is that Jesus made everyone that was walking through that court on their way to the next destination drop everything that was in their possession and leave the temple empty-handed. And so when you read verse number 12 of this passage, you see that Jesus swiftly and dramatically put a stop to corruption and he put a stop to casualness that was taking place in the house of God. Corruption and casualness in the worship of God. And Jesus decimated it. The prophet Malachi in his prophecy approximately 500 years before Jesus came, he proclaimed in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that God would indeed send his Messiah, and when he came, he would purify the temple. Listen to what Malachi wrote in Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of Malachi, and he fulfilled it in a way the people never expected. Jesus' entrance into the temple constitutes a claim of his threefold office as prophet, as priest, and as king. As prophet, Jesus confronted their hypocritical worship and declared that it would not be tolerated in the eyes of God. As priest, he reinstated the proper use of the temple and he rejected the corrupt religious system that had taken place among the leaders. And as king, Jesus clearly exercised authority over all. It was a mighty, irresistible display of power as Jesus symbolically made this temple clean. But I want you to understand another thing about this cleansing of the temple in verse 12. This cleansing also points to a time yet to come. A time that the Old Testament prophet Zechariah saw and prophesied and described. In the very last verse of his prophecy, Zechariah describes the ultimate cleansing that will take place at the second coming of Christ, where an end, a complete and utter end to corrupt casual worship will last forever. And this is what Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 14, 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifices in them. Listen to the last line of his prophecy. 
his very last words, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Corruption, casualness in the worship of God, gone forever. Because Jesus is a king with utter and complete authority. Now we're building on that principle. And notice with me, secondly, in verses 13 and 14, not only the authority of the king, but we see the compassion of the king. Matthew writes, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The temple was to be a place of worship. It was to be a place of quiet meditation. It was to be a place of contemplation. It was to be a place of praise and devotion. It was to be a place where God's people could draw close to him and worship in sacrifice and in offerings and could seek his will and his blessing. Listen, the worship of God was never meant to be a circus. It was never meant to be a circus. And instead of being a safe place where God's people could come and worship, it had become a place where the leaders of the people preyed on those they were supposed to be serving and protecting and leading. And according to Jesus, in these verses, the temple had become a den of robbers. It had become a place of hideout for the religiously corrupt. But it wasn't just that the temple had been defiled by deceitful practices. Listen, don't miss this. It was that the very purpose of the temple had been abandoned and obscured from the people. The religious leaders didn't just bring corruption and casualness into the worship of God. They abandoned the very purpose for the temple, and they obscured that purpose from the people. They made it more difficult for people to encounter God and worship him. And after he cleansed the temple in verse 12, both Mark in chapter 11 and verse 17, and Luke in chapter 19, verses 45 to 48, in their accounts record that Jesus quoted two Old Testament prophets, and he began teaching the people. Luke says it this way in Luke 19. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could, for all the people were hanging on his words. They sought to destroy him for his cleansing act and exposure of their corruption and their casualness. They wanted him dead. Now notice in verse 13, at the beginning of it, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, In Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7 saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Mark in his account adds to this phrase, A house of prayer for all the nations. And what you need to understand about Isaiah chapter 56 is that at the beginning of that chapter, Yahweh offers hope to the outcasts. And he specifically mentions the eunuchs and the foreigners. And he offers hope to them because he says that he is going to grant them salvation and he is going to grant them access to the temple. 
And then these words are penned in Isaiah 56, verses 7 and 8, the words that Jesus quoted in Matthew 13. Isaiah says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God himself says, that the outcast, the marginalized, those who the religious leaders excluded from worship, he will bring to himself and save them and bring access to them into the temple. And in Matthew chapter 21, here in verse 13, when Jesus calls the temple my house, Jesus is affirming that he is God. And when he emphasizes that the temple should be a house of prayer for all the nations of the peoples, Jesus was saying that the house of God should be a place of unhindered worship. That the house of God should reflect the worshiper's dependence upon God. And that the house of God should be a place where every kind of person can find help and can find salvation in Jesus Christ. The very opposite of what the religious leaders had turned the temple and the worship of God into. But he's not finished. At the end of verse 13, Jesus quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7 in verse 11 when he says, But you have made it a den of robbers. And by quoting these words from the prophet Jeremiah, Jesus was comparing the temple and its keepers to a den of robbers, literally a cave of thieves where thieves would store all of their stolen treasure, they would hide out from authorities, and they would plot their next uh, heist. That's what Jesus is describing the temple as. It's a place where the corrupt leaders hide out to plan their schemes to prey on other people. And in the wider context of Jeremiah chapter 7, from which Jesus quotes, the prophet Jeremiah gave a temple sermon in which God compared the people of Judah to robbers because of their sinful behavior both toward him and toward their neighbor. And Jeremiah says to the people of his day that the temple had become a cave for thieves. And listen, this is so important, friends. Don't miss this. It will help you understand the context of Jesus' words. And Jeremiah says to the people that they thought that no matter how great their sins, the religious sacrifices, the ritualistic worship would provide them security from Yahweh and His judgment. They believed that no matter how grievous their sin was, they could come into the temple of God, they could, could take part in ritual sacrifices, and that they could cover their sin and their plots and their scheming from God only to emerge from the temple and continue to sin. And Jeremiah says to them that rather than the house of God being a place of protection from their sin, Jeremiah declares to them that the house of God will be a place of judgment from God upon their sin and their corrupt worship. And this is what Jeremiah says to them in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. Will you steal 
murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Do you hear that, friends? This is God's words to the worshipers of his of Jeremiah's day saying you are doing all of these blatant open sins and you think you're going to come into the house of God like that and offer a couple piddly sacrifices only to go back out and keep on living the way you were living when you came into worship? These are God's words to the people. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And listen to God's words to them through his prophet. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You can't hide anything from omniscience. He sees it all. And by cleansing the temple... Jesus was sending a clear message that the house of worship was not a place to hide your sin. That the house of worship is a place to confess your sin and to declare your need for God and to declare your dependence upon God. Douglas Sean O'Donnell in his commentary on this verse says this, Thieves don't do their robbing in their den. Rather, their den is their safe hideout. So here, Jesus is not merely denouncing all the buying and selling. Rather, he is denouncing the false security of those who come into the temple to offer a sacrifice for sin without the fruits of repentance. The temple, Jesus is saying, has degenerated into a hideout where people think that they can find God's fellowship and forgiveness no matter how they live. End quote. And what was true in Jeremiah's day? And what was true in Jesus' day is true in our day. The corruption and the casualness of the worship of the living God. The people of Jesus' day came into their religious hideout with empty lives, full of hypocrisy, thinking they were safe, only to find that the Lord had entered the temple. And he overturned the tables, thereby overturning their lives. And he drove them out of his presence. And listen to me, dear friend, all the religion, all the religion, and all the religious practices in the world cannot make up for or cover a spiritually barren and fruitless life. In the end, you will still be empty, barren, and fruitless. You cannot hide your sin from the living God. He sees it all. Then you'll notice in verse 14 that Matthew records that not only did Jesus cleanse the temple, he healed in the temple. That this account is not just a scene of righteous anger, it is also a scene of divine compassion. That just as the wicked and the unrepentant can expect God's anger, those who humbly seek for his truth and his help can expect to receive his compassion. 
And because of the ruling based on 2 Samuel 5, 8, the majority of the religious leaders prevented the blind and the lame and the deaf from entering the temple and offering sacrifices. These people were considered ceremonially unclean because they were believed to have been suffering for sin from either their life or the lives of their parents. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day would not allow them to come into the court of the Gentiles. Most of them would sit outside of the temple and they would cry out and they would beg for help. But do you see what happens in verse 14? In a striking reversal, the blind and the lame come to Jesus and he heals them. And this act of divine compassion was a powerful testimony to Christ's kingship, not only over nations, not only over worship, not only over corrupt religious leaders, but he is king over disease. And you'll recall when John the Baptist was in prison and he had doubts about the true identity of Jesus and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus about his identity and if he really was the Messiah, this is what Jesus told his disciples to go back and tell John in prison in Matthew 11 verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In essence, I am the king. I am the Messiah. I have righteous, holy judgment in one hand, and I have divine compassion in the other And by healing the blind and the lame people in the temple, Jesus shows how the temple, listen, don't miss this, how the temple and the worship of God ought to be a place of restoration. It ought to be a place of blessing. It ought to be a place of hope. It ought to be a place of help. That is all encompassed in the worship of God. So, my friends, how do we apply these verses I want to give you three applications to this point. Number one, it is clear from these verses that the house of God is to be a place of compassion. And that like Jesus, the people of God are to be a people of compassion. And so I ask you this morning, dear Christian, does your attitude and posture of heart in worship reflect Jesus' compassion? Or are you so consumed with yourself, with your own needs, your own desires, your own seat, your own enjoyment of worship, that you fail to see the hurting among you? You fail to see the outcast sitting beside you. You fail to see the needs that God has placed right before your very eyes. Dear friend, if the worship and atmosphere of worship to God were dependent upon you and you alone this morning, would the atmosphere in this place be an atmosphere of refreshment? Would would it be an atmosphere of restoration? Would Would it be an atmosphere of blessing? Would it be an atmosphere of hope and healing? Or would it be empty and casual and corrupt? 
Application number two. It is clear from this passage that God is going to judge churches and that his severest judgment will be reserved for those whose worship is hypocritical and hollow and empty. Worship where sin is ignored and covered up and biblical principles are ignored. And I want to ask you this morning, dear friend, do you really think that you can approach the worship of the living God in a corrupt, casual way? Do you really think that you can do that in a corrupt, casual way? Do you honestly think this morning that by coming into the sanctuary of God and trying to cover up your sin through religious activity that you can somehow fool the God of the universe? Do you really think that somehow you can hide from him and make this place a den of robbers, a place of corruption, a place of casualness? That you can somehow fool God? I want to remind you this morning, friends, he sees right through your hypocrisy. He knows everything there is to know about you. And all you are doing this morning by trying to cover up your sin through religious activity so you can go on living the way that you want to live, doing the things that you want to do, listen to me this morning. All you are doing is heaping more and more judgment from God upon yourself. You cannot fool this God. And so I ask you this morning, dear friend, who has never believed on Christ and received his forgiveness for your sins, would you today repent of the corrupt heart that dwells inside of you? Would you repent of your hypocritical worship? Would you today quit playing games with Jesus Christ and once and for all surrender your life to him as Lord and Savior and King of your life? I want to say to you this morning, friend, what are you waiting for? You hear the gospel week in and week out. You hear the people of God singing the praises of God. You hear the word of God. And you can stay in your hypocrisy and deceit. You can stay in your corruption. You can never be moved from that. How can you? How can you stay like that? The Lord will cleanse his temple. He will decimate corruption, casualness, coming into worship, acting like you're doing God a favor, that you could somehow fit it into your so busy schedule. God knows nothing of that kind of worship. He is Lord and King. Application number three. This passage serves as a sobering reminder to the leaders of the church and of the kind of worship and the kind of leadership that the Lord of the church expects from his leaders. Not a leadership that builds platforms for themselves. Not a leadership that preys upon the emotions and the feelings of the people that they have been called to love and to serve and to lead. But a leadership that humbles itself in service to the Lord of his church and his people. And so I ask you, dear brother leader, 
Are you in danger of leading the way the religious leaders of Jesus' day did? If the Lord of the church judged his temple in this manner in his day, what do you think he's going to do with the church in the 21st century, friend? What do you think is going to happen? Judgment is coming, and as Peter says, it will begin at the house of God. So we see the authority of the king and the compassion of the king. Number three, in verses 15 and 16, we see the praise of the king. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Like the blind and the lame, the children were often ignored. And here Matthew says that these children continue the chant of the crowd from the day before in Jesus' triumphal entry, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Matthew records in these verses that in response to Jesus' teaching and his wonderful miracles of healing, as well as the response of the children, the chief priest and the scribes were indignant. They were furious. They were wrathful towards Jesus. Mark, in his account, in Mark eleven eighteen, says that the chief priest and the scribes wanted to destroy him because they feared him, because the people were hanging on his words. In the religious leaders' minds, Jesus was standing in opposition to God himself by performing these healings of those who were being punished for their sins. Furthermore, instead of recognizing their authority, Jesus condemned their self-righteousness. And instead of praising their holiness, he condemned their hypocrisy and corruption. And instead of recognizing their religious works as pleasing to God, he condemned them and said that they were offensive to God and worthless. And they wanted to destroy him. In verse 16, Matthew records that the chief priests and the scribes asked Jesus a question after all of this. Do you see what they ask him? Do you hear what these are saying? Now notice Jesus' response. I love it. Notice it. Don't miss it. They ask him, do you hear what these are saying? What does Jesus say? Yes. Yes. In my sanctified imagination, I think he's just looking at him and he says, yes, an awkward silence. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Jesus was fully aware of what was being said of him and what it meant. And then after he answers them, notice in the text, Jesus asks a question of his own. Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And in his question, he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Now, here's what you need to know about Psalm 8. Psalm 8, in its entirety, is a praise psalm to God. And in this psalm, the psalmist says that God has ordained worship for himself from the lips of babies and infants. Now, just think about that for a moment. That the lips of babies and infants give praise to God. And Jesus' point is this. If tiny children, like babies and infants, 
are prepared by God to give him praise, how much more these children that you're hearing cry out, son of David, save us now. And by quoting this psalm, Jesus is once again saying that he is God and that he is worthy of the praise of these children and that the praise of these children actually confirms that he is God. And I'll remind you this morning, dear friends, that Christ will be praised. He will be praised from one end of the earth to the other. Jesus said that if men reject him and if men refuse to praise him, the rocks will cry out in praise. Jesus Christ will be praised. And these two verses remind us how on two earlier occasions, Jesus used children to illustrate the kind of humility and faith that every person must have if they want to become a member of Christ's kingdom. Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children such as these in Matthew 19 and verse 4. And he taught in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 that unless you come like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now for a third time in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus reminds us of what is required to enter his kingdom. Only those who are willing to humble themselves in dependence like little children and believe the truth about themselves and believe the truth about Jesus Christ. Only those who come like children in humility will have their sins forgiven will be reconciled to God, and will be saved from eternal judgment. Friends, Jesus is reminding all of us this morning that the only religion that God accepts is genuine, humble confession and praise of Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. You've heard me say it this way. You cannot be saved unless you recognize that you were born in sin and you're a sinner and your sins separate you from the living God. You cannot be saved unless you believe that God's son came to earth and lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life in your place on your behalf, a life that you could never live, and that he died the painful, shameful death of a cross in your place for your sins, that he was buried and then he rose from the grave as a sign of defeating sin, Satan, death, and hell. And ascended to heaven and one day is coming back for his people. Until you acknowledge your sin and you turn from it in confession, saying the same thing that God says about it, that you're a sinner. And repenting from it, turning away from it, and believing in Jesus Christ and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. You cannot be saved and you cannot go to heaven. And no matter religious practice or ritual will ever get you there. No amount of good deeds will ever get you there. All of the people in heaven will be there the same way through Jesus. That's why Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. You are not excluded from that statement. No one comes except through Jesus.
And unless you come like a child, you will never come. So we see the authority of the king, the compassion of the king, and the praise of the king. Finally, we see the rejection of the king in verse 17. This is a very interesting verse, and if you're not careful, you read right over it and you miss the point of it all. Matthew says that after this confrontation with the chief priest and the scribes, Jesus left the temple, and look at what the text says, went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Mark, in his account, says that when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So he spent the day in the temple dealing with this corrupt, casual worship. And as we've already seen, Bethany is the village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, approximately two miles away. And it's said that during Passover week, because there were so many pilgrims in Jerusalem, at the end of the day, they would have to go to the outskirts of the city to find lodging and rest and food. And that's what Jesus did every day of the last week of his life. He went to Bethany and he lodged with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. But that's a surface reading of the text. There's something deeper in this verse. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it. Matthew means that Jesus withdrew for more than rest. Jesus' withdrawal was an act of final rejection. His going out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, out to the outskirts, was a picture of rejecting the religious leaders and the corruption. You see the phrase in your Bible in verse 17, leaving them? It literally means and can be translated, leave behind. It implies a purposeful departure, uh, probably with disgust and anger, that Jesus didn't just casually leave. He left disgusted. He left angry. This same phrase is also used in Matthew 16, verse 4, where Jesus leaves the Pharisees and Sadducees to cross the Sea of Galilee. And in each instance, don't miss this, Jesus' departure is a deliberate act of judgmental abandonment. By his leaving, he is giving them final judgment and abandonment to their corruption and to their sin. As a result of the religious leader's opposition and rejection, Jesus deliberately, Jesus willfully abandons them in everything related to Israel's false worship. He leaves them behind. James Montgomery Boyce summarized his actions this way. If you will not have Jesus, he will go. But when he does, life, light, and the only hope of salvation go with him. Jesus left them behind because they refused to come to him. And so I ask you this morning, will you refuse to come to Jesus? Sinner, will you reject him again? Will you refuse him just like they did? Will you be left behind by Jesus? Jesus began his earthly ministry at Passover, and he's going to end it at Passover. 
And this cleansing of the temple is, a, is an event that took place both at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed the temple, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for cleansing this temple? And Jesus said to them, When you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. The Jews were shocked by his statement. And they said to him in reply, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John inserts his commentary into the exchange, and he says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. In just a few chapters at the end of Matthew's gospel, when the temple of Jesus' body is destroyed on the cross, at that very moment, the Bible says the temple in Jerusalem is symbolically destroyed. Because the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God from the rest of the world, was split from top to bottom in one fell swoop. And through Christ's sacrificial death, the earthly temple had theologically gone out of business. And it was replaced by the one who said of himself, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus. Friends, in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus declares God's judgment on false, fruitless, empty, hypocritical religion. And he declares once more that he is king. Would you this day bow before this king in humble repentance, worship, confession, and adoration. Let's pray.